Welcome to Dean's Council, a podcast aimed at supporting university leaders holding one of the more critical jobs on a university campus. Your panelists, Ken Kring, Jim Ellis, and Dave Eikenberry, engage in conversation with highly accomplished deans and other academic leaders regarding the ever-complex array of challenges that deans face in one of the loneliest and most unique jobs in the academy. Allison Davis-Blake is a true leader in business education. After entering administration while on the faculty at the University of Texas at Austin, she became dean of the Carlson School at the University of Minnesota in 2006. In 2011, Allison was appointed dean of the Ross School of Business at the University of Michigan, a role she held for five years. In 2018, Allison was named president of Bentley College. It's certainly fair to say she knows a thing or two about being an effective dean. In this episode, among the many great pieces of advice we hear, we learn about Allison's insights into why it is that the deanship can be lonely, the benefits of being a transparent leader, how to grow leadership talent within the organization, and the importance of being both an effective listener and communicator. She also urges us to bring joy wherever possible to our roles as dean and offers tips on how to accomplish that. Our guest today is Allison Davis-Blake. We're delighted to have you here, uh, Allison. As many know, you and I have a long and positive history together. In fact, I, we know that some of the things we're going to talk about today have been on your mind and will be unusually informative for our listening audience. Gee, it's over a dozen years ago that we put together a little uh, research uh, document called uh, the Business School Dean Redefined New Leadership Requirements from the Front Lines of the Academy. You and Sally Blount were wonderful contributors to that. And we talked a lot about the role of uh, Dean. So with your distinguished career having been a two-time dean, you know, really cut your teeth as a senior associate dean uh, at University of Texas, and then the Carlson School of Management, as well as the Ross School at University of Michigan deanships. You've had a lot of experience in the role, and I, I think that you know one topic that has been, I would say, you know, not widely discussed, but that uh, would love to have you zero in on is just the loneliness of being the dean, uh, sort of what it means to move from, in most cases, the, a faculty role, which has a certain kind of in-depth around the role itself, but collegiality, to being in that position where you sometimes have to be and get to be the one and only. So with that, would love to hear your thoughts on sort of why is it a lonely job? Well, thanks, Ken, for that generous introduction. And I would say there are three reasons why it's lonely. The first you've alluded to, this may be uh, your first role where you don't really have faculty colleagues in the sense that you had before. If you're coming from a department chair, as uh, we know, in most cases, chairs rotate in and out, and you're going to go back to the faculty, you come from the faculty. So collegiality sort of stays with you. Even if you've been an associate dean or senior associate dean uh, for faculty, you still have a lot of collegiality in this role. But if you're coming 
you know, from the outside, especially, or if you're coming from one of those roles, there's a clear break. You do not have faculty colleagues. You are the other. You are that, you know, administrator that people like to vilify. So I think it's a sea change in your colleagues. And it's really the first job that's wholly managerial for most people. In other roles, you often teach, you may maintain your program of research, but deans are really the ultimate middle manager, sort of stuck between the provost and president and the faculty writ large. And so you spend a lot of time trying to mediate uh, between those different groups and meet the conflicting and sometimes competing needs of the different groups. And I think the third reason is, as you said, Ken, you're the ultimate decider and you often have to take really difficult decisions that can't be transparent. And I'm a big believer in transparency, transparency of budget, transparency of strategy. Uh, sometimes you have to make resource allocation decisions where things are just not transparent fully, or you have to deal with faculty, staff, or student misconduct. So on those moments, you have to be often make the decision totally alone. So be, between losing your colleagues, being a full-time manager, and having to do things where the rest of it is not transparent, I think it's really lonely. And I know when I was in Texas, associating and it was a very big job which was to run the school that was the job description the first thing that I thought within the first month is you know I was I was not immune from criticizing the dean and going out to lunch with my colleagues and saying oh it's so obvious why doesn't the dean see this and pretty soon I said I wish I had been more charitable towards the dean because this job's a whole lot harder than it looks so what do you say to a new dean that's never had any managerial experience, that's come up through the faculty, that's been a world-class researcher, that's been a great department chair and done a nice job as a department chair, even though some people might say, well, that's a managerial job. You're still being a colleague there. You have to make some tough decisions there and telling them they've got to teach an eight o'clock class or whatever it is they don't like. But how do you tell somebody that's never been a manager to prepare for this, and, and you're right, it is a managerial job. How do you tell them to prepare for that? What can they do? Is there, is there Are there any words of wisdom you can give them for that? I think there are a, a couple of things. Put people around you who can coach and mentor you. And you may have a formal coach. At Michigan, deans were encouraged to get formal coaches. It may be meet the deans in the other schools. They can be helpful. Meet deans uh, around the country. So quickly build relationships. I know one of the things that was really valuable to me when I was at Minnesota is I had a really good friend who became the dean at another school at the same time I did. He had come up through the student ranks and I come like the associate dean for students. I'd come up largely through the faculty ranks. And that first year was so interesting because I, something would happen with students and I'd call him and I, I'd say, what do I do? I have no idea. And he'd say, oh, do A, B, C, D. And he similarly, he'd call me and say, oh, I need to make a counter offer on a big chair and I need, I don't know how to structure it so it'll work. And I, and I go, well, that's my world. So I learned so much from that. I think this might be 
a little bit of an interesting suggestion, but I know when I was at Michigan, I, I put together kind of a mini exec ed program for deans. And I, I think there is some merit into sitting in on some of those exec ed courses or lectures. You can do it under the guise of on the dean. I want to just see what's happening. But in the areas where you're weak, that's very helpful. So I think there's there are formal opportunities, but don't do not delay in making alliances and connections wherever you can find them. Allison, you had notable success as a fundraiser. There's always that sort of binary. If you haven't done it before, how are you going to learn to do it? How do you learn to do it? What is it really like? Can you talk about sort of that transition and what kind of insights you can share about sort of the transition from being not a fundraiser uh, to, to, uh, to being effective as a fundraiser? So the first thing I'll say is that I've served on many, many Dean search committees in various capacities. And one notable thing that I've seen in those committees is that the people on those committees don't have experience as fundraisers and they tend to present the job or think about the fundraising role as you're kind of a very gregarious person and you go around and you're slapping people on the back and say, oh, buddy, oh, pal, where is the wallet? And it's nothing like that. And I think it's really important to demystify it. Most people on faculties are introverts and Fundraising is a great job for an introvert because fundraising is listening. It's not talking, it's listening. What you really want to do in fundraising is you want to sit across the table or at breakfast or dinner with someone and say, tell me about your dreams and hopes for philanthropy. What are you trying to accomplish? Once you know that, which is a, a listening job only, then, and only then, can you say, well, let's talk about how we might partner. Here are a few ideas. So I think that is just a fundamental thing to understand. If you can listen well and you're creative, you can raise money. I think the other thing that you, of course, want is a chief development officer who briefs you fully on people, their whole history, what are their likes, their dislikes, and can give you a little bit of coaching on, don't talk about this, this is really helpful. So you can do it. And you can do it, like I said, if you listen and you're creative, there is that big group aspect of fundraising where you're doing alumni relations and so forth. That is the classroom. I always converted that into an open Q&A. And if you're good in the classroom, you'll be good at that. There is the ultimate, kind of my nightmare still, the 300-person cocktail party. And I was just lost in that until I worked with someone who, where we really developed a strategy. We'd say there are 300 people here. Some of them are green. You really need to see them. Some of them are yellow. They'll, they'll bend your ear a lot. And some of them are red. They're just there to express a grievance. So we would make a list. And I would say, your job is to move me from green person to green person. Now, eventually, I'd know who the people were. But I think 
using those tactics of understanding what it is and having your um, development officer shore you up where you're weak. That was my tactic for the big, the ultimate gathering. There's no need to be afraid and don't let people tell you the job is glad handing and, you know, tin cupping. It's not. Do you think that the job today, given the entitlements of students and some of the issues that are going on with students, is just that much more difficult than it was back when maybe people thought it was glad handing and thought it was a, a, a coronation as opposed to a difficult five-year death sentence? <laughs> There's no question in my mind, Jim, that the job is harder today. And I think there are several things that make it so. First, the social context has changed and the expectation that universities will be the solution to major social problems is completely new and not one that universities can fulfill. I believe over time, uh, universities and business schools will find their place. So there are expectations that are just unmeetable. I know that's not a word, but unmeetable. You cannot do this. I think that this generation of students is very, very different in terms of their expectations of what they will receive. And I think uh, there's ample evidence this generation tends to frame things as demands rather than as points of conversation. And it's really difficult to uh, deal with demands because often the demands are well-meaning, but there are things that the people making the demands can't see. And I think the third thing that we just know is is a crisis of student mental health and you got to find all the money for that or work with uh, your campus leadership to find all the money. But you have so many people in crisis. There's a lot written about that. Let me just say that that adds a dimension. So between trying to fulfill for the moment society's expectation, dealing with demands instead of conversations and people in crisis, I think it makes it exponentially harder. There's almost a intersection of the increased loneliness of the role with the increased need for communication and transparency. Talk with us about what strategies deal with that sort of complexity of competing agendas and doing the job well. I think that's something that really needs even more attention than ever. And I think this is What I'm about to say has always been true, but now it's doubly, triply uh, more true. I think it's really important to set in motion mechanisms, transparency to your different constituents and transparency about critical things. So I think it's really important when you assume the deanship and most people will go through some sort of strategic planning exercise that that exercise be broad and inclusive of all stakeholders inside and outside the school. And that you use that exercise not only to find out what people want, but to bring people along as this uh, plan is developed. So when you arrive at the plan, you have a fair bit of support. And that is so important because then you can regularly report against the plan. Remember when we were all together and we agreed we'd do X, Y, and Z? 
here's the progress against X, Y, and Z. And that allows you to structure your conversations in a way that has some support from the group because they were there. And we all agreed that this is what can be done. And I like to want to get to a strategic plan, say, here are the mission vision that you may or may not uh, have to fine tune. Here are our goals and here are the initial tactics. So essentially, and you've got as much, there is no consensus in academia, but you've got as much agreement as is possible. So when you come back in your first year and say, let's talk about this. I am a big fan of regular town halls for students and faculty and staff of going to departmental meetings and just tell people what you're going to tell them, <laughs> tell people then what you are telling them, tell people what you told them. There is no thing, no such thing as too much communication, but I think it's easy to get lost in your own head and say, oh, well, I know all this. No, everyone around you does not know all this. You need to make the time. And when you're out with alumni, what do you talk about? The same things. Here's the plan. Here's what we agreed to. And you may tailor your message, but I think you need structured communication around things that people will recognize. It's very time consuming, but I think it's the only way, especially in these times. I think it's really a great strategy. I think you're absolutely right. I, my question, tactically speaking, if you back up just a second, at what point in your initial year do you think you're really ready to put a strategy and a vision together? How much time would you give a new dean to go on, quote, unquote, a listening tour to really learn that before you really can put something in place? I'd say, and this is where I tell people to calm down, one full year to get to the whole enchilada, which is your mission, your vision, and your strategic goals. But you don't wait until the end of that year to just go voila. I like to uh, stage it. So first, if we need to clarify our mission and vision and our values, let's have conversation about that. And let's get to a mini step where we agree on that. So you don't spend a year and do nothing. That will be very uh, unhelpful. You Then when you start on the goals, you link that to mission, vision, and strategy. The goals are then kind of a reveal. And then the tactics at the end, this is a year long job. Do not rush it. Don't rush it because you won't uh, engage in enough conversation. It might feel like, and people will be pounding on you and saying, where's the strategy? And your answer is, you know, we've worked on a mission, vision, we have some goals, now we're working on tactics. Wherever you are, you present the, and you explain in order to do this, here are the steps we're taking, because that is the foundation for your deanship. That will set the agenda for what you do, at least for, say, your first term. You know, we talk about transparency, and transparency is really, and you've emphasized that a number of times. Why is it that there are times when deans just plain aren't transparent? What happens there? Is that a fear of giving out information that they have the power over that they don't want to let anybody else have? What happens there? How do you explain that one? A really good question, Jim. And let me 
answer it by giving an example from my area of research. This is not my specific area, but it's related. There's been a lot of research about pay secrecy and looking at open pay systems versus closed. And the research is really clear. When pay systems are closed, people exaggerate the differences in pay and get angry about things that aren't happening. But why are pay systems closed? Because the people in charge of pay systems say, oh, if people knew that they would freak out. And what I tell people when I teach about this is if you have to keep your pay system closed, you probably have something to hide. So clean it up and let it be transparent. I think people have really big unjustified fears about transparency. If people only knew they would think ill of me, they would overreact. The truth about transparency, even if you have something bad to say, this is an area where we need to improve, people value knowing. And the other thing that I always talk about when I teach is I say, you cannot ask people to join you in a journey they don't understand. So if you need, for example, to control costs, step one is to say, here's the whole financial structure. And I've done something more than once that has every CFO I've had said this will never work and it's worked, which is to say, here's the whole budget and we need to really trim certain costs. I, I want to invite each of you to look at your activities and my CFO may join you. You ask yourself, is this necessary? If it is necessary, are we doing it in the most cost effective way? Uh, does it have to happen now? And I will tell you, it's like a financial miracle. Every time I've tried that, all those expenses that are distributed in your departments and centers, they come in lower. Why? Because people want to help you. As Alfred P. Doolittle said in My Fair Lady, I'm willing to help you. I'm waiting to help you. I'm wanting to help you. Give them a chance to help you. But people, they imagine in their mind things that are not true. And I've been there, so I don't want to disparage others because it's. I always have that little fear when I start. Allison, on, on sort of a similar note, and I, I'm going to brag about you a little bit, but it's, it's not false flattery. You have put together extraordinary teams. You've brought people in, you've cultivated and developed them. They've gone on to you know, greater and bigger responsibility. Talk with us some about sort of how you've done that. And this gets back to the transparency piece also. What do you do to enlist both the trust, but also the responsibility of people who've been on your teams? So that's a really good question. And thank you for that flattery, which I will say isn't false. It's one of the things probably that I'm proudest of in my career is the people that I've been able to advance. How I build a team is I first start by talking with people around the school saying, who would be good at this job? Who would be good at that job? Who would you trust? And that gets it very quickly to a very short list of people. And I don't privilege people who are like me. I really need people who are not like me. I, I need to be able to tolerate them, but it takes very little for that. And what I really privilege is people who have different views and there have got to be people on the team strong enough to say, you are wrong. You are about to make an 
a major mistake. So how do I recruit and then make those people into a team? So I come to the people and talk with them. And at some point I say, your colleagues really think you would be great at this. And that usually creates an opening and I'll tell them what I see in them. And often the people that are identified by the colleagues are not the usual suspects, they're unexpected people. And so at first get the people and bring them in with the idea, the truthful idea that they're trustworthy and their colleagues will value their contribution. And then I work really hard at building the team using sort of the normal tactics you would teach in any group dynamics class. But the other thing that's always on my mind is for every person, I try to find out what their aspirations are. And my aspirations are usually bigger for them. They can reject that, but they usually don't. When we're having regular meetings, I will just listen for areas where they have passion and where they can grow and contribute. I will give them opportunities in those areas. I really think carefully about any central opportunity for leadership development, and I never pass it up. So I think it's a, a process that starts with who will the community trust, at least in initially. And it starts with valuing people and ex explaining their value, building their value, even when they don't see it, but always trying to understand them and then building a, a, a support group around it. It's great advice. And, and I think that you're building that leadership team and sending them off to their next role. You're empowering them to do the job and do the job they, the way they think they would do it. I think that's just terrific. Continuity of leadership, important in that we don't see it that much anymore. You know, we see many deans that are one-term deans. They take a five-year appointment and they're, I'm done with this. I got to get out of here. How do you help a dean or how do you, what do you tell somebody that, look, it's going to take you five years just to make sure you can talk about your, your strategy and your vision with the alumni as you start raising money. You can't really get too successful until you get into about the third or fourth year. And then all of a sudden you're done. And, and that's really doesn't help the school. doesn't help you. It doesn't help a lot of people. What do you do to sort of assure some continuity? If, if this dean's good, we do want him to stay in the job. And especially now, as we've talked previously, it's a tough job today. Well, let me first confess, I'm probably not the right person because I was recruited away from my deanship uh, twice. But it, let's say the person wants to stay. And, and my situation is kind of complex. So I don't think it's good for me to to analogize from where I sit, but I understand the question you're asking and it is burnout. Here's my take on the job. It takes you exactly what you said, Jim, three years to get rolling. And my problem was always, then I became a little bored. And I think this is not unusual for high performance academics. So I would counsel people that you need to think about renewal, where you get into that situation where the, the machine is running. If you've done everything right, the machine is running and it can feel a little routine. So you need to think about an extension to your strategic plan or an area of, of contribution that really means something to you. Because one of the things that I tell people is this job 
can be joyless or joyful. If you just take the job as given to you, you will be very unhappy in a very short period of time. But what you need to do, and I think this is, you need to do it initially and you need to do it as you think about renewal. What do you really have passion for that you want to accomplish that's within your plan that will just doing it will make you happy? So for example, I have a big, because of personal experience, big belief in students should have an international or intercultural experience. And when I was at Carlson, we got that done. And just the ability to weave through the bureaucracy quickly was not only satisfying, but then I always spent time every year at a reception for the travelers and talked with students. And it was so renewing just to hear what they learned. And that is something that you have to make your own joy. If you just do the job as written in the position description, it will be joyless. And so think about how can you renew, because usually you have some, you were brought in for some issues, you probably solved them. Now you're going to go to the next level, which is you've got the ship running, you've got the ship, ship humming, people are calling you constantly if you're decent. And I, I would be hypocrite if I said, don't listen to the siren song, because I have. Uh, but I would say before you do that, have you built in joy in the doing? And part of my joy came from developing people. Part of it came from specific things that I did uh, in the job. And I think some, at Michigan, and this is not usual, but deans could take sabbaticals. And I think it was a very effective tool like for a semester, but you can design a summer sabbatical for yourself. You can say, uh, I'm putting my associate deans in charge or, you know, whatever your downtime is, your personal renewal is very important because otherwise, first, you'll be miserable. And second, when Ken Kring calls you, you'll say, oh, speak to me. And he's really good at speaking to you. Well, thank you for that. Uh, Allison, importantly, thank you for participating here today. Your your insights, your the, the experience you've shared and uh, just very uh, generous, informative, and I know our audience will will enjoy. Great being with you here today. I second that. You are a pro at this job. You've your reputation precedes you in so many ways, and we really appreciate you taking so the time. much for inviting me. I hope to the listeners that this is helpful. You can not only survive but thrive in the deanship, and that's my final message thrive. So, Jim, what were your thoughts on the conversation? Well, you know, she brought up some very salient points that no one who has, hasn't had great experience like she's had could make those kind of points. And I think that they, you know, particularly when she got into specifics about building a vision, how long that takes, how long you should allocate to that. So many people want to get this thing done very, very quickly. And as she said, you know, it's really a building building block thing, and it takes a year to get it done. I think there's a lot of people that would press and say, we need to have a vision right away. We need to have a strategy right away. She gets it. She knows it's it's a long-term process. And I think that advice for any dean to just 
take the time to listen to the, your constituents and hear what's out there, see what your core competence is, and then go from there. And talk about making it joyful. Oh, my gosh. I mean, she presented that with just great joy, I, which I really enjoyed. Yeah, I mean, fascinating because she certainly knows how to do the job and has done it before. You know, the other thing that I thought during the course of our conversation is, while you know, there was a little bit of a theme of the loneliness at the top. She really is a practitioner of how to how to engage others, how to develop others, how to how to sort of build communication patterns across different constituencies that are both consistent, but also differentiated, very savvy and very engaging, I guess. Yeah, very much so. You can, you can really see her building building a leadership team and, and helping people grow in a job where they didn't see themselves even being, you know, six months earlier. And uh, she's just got that sense of how to build a team and, and how important the team is to her to shore her up. And I, I loved her her whole conversation on transparency. I thought that was just excellent. Be confident and transparent. And I think a lot of people just don't have the confidence to be as transparent as they could be. It also, in a way, she also gave invitation to her team and others to be transparent with her. So, yes. you know, being a good, you know, being a good and accepting listener and asking for criticism actually allows for mutual transparency rather than one way transparency. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dean's Council. This show is supported in part by Corn Ferry, leaders in executive search. Dean's Council was produced in Boulder, Colorado by Joel Davis of Analog Digital Arts. For a catalog of previous shows, please visit our website at deanscouncil.com. If you have any feedback for us, please let us know by sending an email to feedback at deanscouncil.com. And finally, please hit follow or subscribe on your favorite podcast player so that you can automatically receive our latest show.